From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. The goal with the collective is to bridge that gap so then there is a lot more equity and a lot more opportunity because these coffees are incredible and most of the time when they're coming from people with marginalized identities, those people are ensuring that they're honoring the farmers as well. So the farmers are then getting equitable pay. And so it's it's creating that throughout the supply chain. This week on the show, we're talking coffee with Corey Griggs. She's with the Color of Coffee Collective, working to support equitable access in the world of specialty coffee. And later in the show, we have farming updates from our partners at Harvest Public Media. Thanks for tuning into Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. You know, I'm going to miss these times. Are you going to get sentimental on me? <laughs> With General Foods International Coffees. If you're old enough to remember that TV ad campaign from the 1980s, then you might be familiar with the first wave of coffee. People in the coffee world have identified three waves of coffee consumption in the United States. The first wave peaked in the 1950s when coffee became ubiquitous. Households from all walks of life had a percolator in their kitchen, later replaced by a Mr. Coffee-style drip machine. Think Folgers and Maxwell House and celebrating the moments of your life with General Foods International coffees, which were basically metal tins of flavored instant coffee with built-in cream and sugar. I myself came of age in the second wave of coffee. I was 20 years old the first time I walked into a downtown coffee shop while visiting Boulder, Colorado. The aroma of freshly roasted coffee filled the room, and the grating sounds of whole beans grinding and espresso machines whizzing filled my ears. Second wave coffee is characterized by dark roasted coffee served in giant coffee cups, sometimes with flavored Italian syrups. Starbucks was born in this age, and all of the copycats and independent coffee shops in cities and towns across the country. Coffee shops became known as a third place, a space outside of home and work to meet friends, to hang out, to study, or even attend a poetry reading or a book club. That third place status of the coffee shop has stayed with us in what is known as the third wave for coffee, starting around the 2010s. What has changed is the coffee itself. In this stage, there's more focus on the origin of the coffee and how the beans are processed and roasted. Lighter roasts are trending, the giant cups are out, latte art is in, and pour-overs are common at most shops. We'll hear more about that brewing method later in the show. Our guest today is connected to some of the hottest trends in specialty coffee. And yet, in another sense, she's calling for a return to that sentiment expressed in those cheesy ads. My name is Corey K.P. Griggs. I use pronouns she, her, and I am a coffee lover, fanatic, and writer, artist, activist. To start out with, I would just like to know, I would like to hear in your words what is the Color of Coffee Collective. 
The Color of Coffee Collective is a collective of marginalized people within specialty coffee. When I say specialty coffee, it's, you know, outside the scope of when we think about Starbucks or like the big, big name specialty is more like when you think about your local coffee shops, your roasters, your baristas, everything like that. And we create educational opportunities within this industry. What that looks like is if a person holds a marginalized identity within the specialty coffee industry and they need more support or they need more education, sometimes it goes all the way to they don't really know how to interact with their community to make sure that they get everybody involved in that area. We kind of come in and whatever the needs are, we develop a curriculum around those needs. And so we do that all over the nation. We're specifically founded out of Houston, Texas. So a lot of our like brew ups or the smaller get-togethers or the smaller education opportunities that we do happen there. And then every year we do a symposium and that is our big event. So we have people come in from all over the world. We have panels so that we can get the full scope of what it looks like to create equity from seed to cup. So we talk to farmers, we talk to producers, we talk to roasters, we talk to literally every person along the supply chain. And so we just create those educational opportunities centered around equity. Is it something where a coffee shop, like say somebody starts a business and then they might have you come in like as a consultant almost? Yeah. So whether it's a shop that is just opening, getting ready to open, has been open for a while, all of those we cover. A lot of times there's a lack of barista training that occurs where it's like, okay, how can you actually set up your entire staff for success? And so we come in and we have people that are incredibly knowledgeable when it comes to brew methods, latte art, dialing in espresso, like literally all the technical things surrounding that to ensure that when people walk through that door, they're getting the best experience from customer service to taste to experience everything. I guess to step back a little bit is how did you yourself get into this world? How did you find yourself in the coffee world? I was a director of marketing in like corporate America for about six years. And I was trying to figure out how I could leave that setting and pursue my art full time. But also I wasn't making enough income from my art at the time. So I was like, okay, what can float me through? And um, when I was like working my office job, Two days a week, I'd work remotely. And I always went to this one coffee shop. And so I was just sitting at the bar one day and I was like, hey, could I work here? And they all kind of laughed because they were like, you come here to work like on your job, you know. And I was like, no, I'm trying to pursue my own stuff. But I love coffee. But I just like all I really knew was like I consumed a lot of it. (laughs) So it was (laughs) like, okay, what does it look like to make it, to be immersed in it? And that was in 20... 18. Yeah, so 2018. And I started working behind the bar and just like fell in love with the art of just making coffee. And the specific shop that I was at was in Carmel, Indiana, and it's Indie Coffee Roasters. They are really, really centered on education. So even if you're a customer there and you want to know anything, like they'll walk you through the steps, they'll teach you how to make pour overs. Anything you want to know, they'll let you know. So working there, I was just fully immersed and fell in love and I was like oh my gosh like coffee comes from 
people that look like me. Coffee is developed and cultivated and cared for and farmed. And so I just got really into the history of it. And I fell in love because I was like, well, I'm drinking it all the time anyway. So (laughs) let me like honor it as well. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people enjoy drinking it, but wouldn't necessarily dive into to all of that background information. Yeah. So it sounds like it just stirred a passion or something. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely did. And I, I, I'm such an artist. And to be able to make something that I love with my own hands fully tied into everything that I love. So when you said that they will show you how to make a pour over, show you how to do whatever. You mean like they will do that for customers? Like yeah. They are also a roaster. So they roast their own beans and that's what they sell. That's what they serve. And they offer cupping classes. Oh, yeah. It's kind of like wine tasting, but with coffee. You know, you learn how to brew it properly, how to ensure you get the most flavor out of it. You can sit at the bar and get the full experience from espresso, lattes, cortados, cappuccinos, pour overs, everything. From there, what did you, where did you go? I stayed in that as a barista role until I think 2020. And then I took a manager role at a different coffee shop. And then the pandemic hit and I was just like, well, this isn't sustainable. (laughs) So, um, and at that time, like my art and my writing had kind of taken off. So I really had to grapple with, am I going to commit to figuring out how to stay in this industry as a like customer facing role or step back and use my writing skills, everything like that, too, because I really just wanted to tell stories within the coffee industry. I wanted to really be a voice to create that education and kind of bridge the gap from farm to table. Like a lot of times with with anything that we're consuming, we're not thinking about where it comes from. Or like the people it comes from. And with coffee, most of the time, the farms that it's coming from, those are family farms. Like those are families that have cultivated that land for years and years and years. And so I had been submitting my art to this publication called Coffee People Zine. And the founder and editor reached out to me and asked if I would be interested in taking over an issue as like the executive editor designing, doing everything for it. And it was my opportunity to just like tell those stories in essentially a book form. So I did that. And then I stayed on as like a managing editor for a few more issues and just really fell even more in love with telling stories of roasters from all over the nation that had never been highlighted before. So I got to interview them and That kind of led to I created just like a social media presence from that, just connecting with shops all over, farmers, producers, roasters, and even baristas. And from there, Keith, the founder of the Color of Coffee Collective, reached out to me and was like, hey, this is my vision. I want to basically create a collective that can support all of these people that you're featuring, all of these stories. We just have been running with it ever since (laughs) just trying to get the word out to people and really create as much support as possible within this industry and and the support is specifically directed towards marginalized communities or people who might otherwise not find themselves in the coffee industry or might face some barriers can you talk a little bit more about that the specialty coffee industry has 
experienced a lot of gatekeeping in a lot of ways. I know that even when I entered into the industry, I wasn't seeing people that looked like me. I wasn't seeing other black women. I wasn't seeing other even black men, like in even in barista roles. So because I wasn't seeing them in barista roles, I definitely wasn't seeing them as roasters. Like roasters was portrayed to me that it's like this elite position within coffee. So it just takes a lot to even be able to step into that role. And that was strange to me because I'm the type of person, if I want to learn something, I'll just dive headfirst into it and figure it out. (laughs) So I would start kind of like coffee shop hopping around Indianapolis, even down here in Bloomington. And I realized like, okay, it's a predominantly white industry, but I didn't understand that, especially when it's an industry that all of the product comes from black and brown people. So there was a huge disconnect there. And the more I started reaching out and just trying to find people in different cities, places, everything, I was like, okay, there are people. It's just that their voices aren't really being heard. So what does it look like to enhance that and make sure that that can be heard? And a lot of it was they just didn't have adequate support. And because they didn't have adequate support, they also didn't have adequate education in it. So while they're learning how to roast, which is incredible in itself, they may not have the proper equipment to enhance that experience, to get more support. So, you know, it's just definitely a display of the differences, more or less, of people in marginalized positions in everyday life. That that was hap- That is happening in the coffee industry as well. So the goal with the collective is to bridge that gap so then there is a lot more equity and a lot more opportunity because these coffees are incredible and most of the time when they're coming from people with marginalized identities those people are ensuring that they're honoring the farmers as well so the farmers are then getting equitable pay and so it's it's creating that throughout the supply chain so what does the collective look like now and like how do you interface with the people in the in the industry. We had our first ever symposium last year. It brought people from all over the world. And because of that, last year was more centered on hearing the needs. And this year is applying what we heard as a need and giving that to the people. So this year is more centered on education where we have breakout sessions, breakout rooms centered on one is like branding and coffee, how to make sure you're branding your business. One's financial literacy. I'm doing self-care and coffee. How are you actually caring for yourself while also experiencing your business? We have roasting. We have every need we heard. We're like, okay, we already know somebody that's well-versed in that. Let's plug them in. Also give them an opportunity to have their voice heard even more. Teach a class teach it to people who want to absorb knowledge, then take it to their people. I mean, it is, it's a collective, you know, you've got, you've got people that come in, we learn from each other, then we take what we learn and we go out to our communities. And because while we're founded in Houston, like I'm obviously here in Indiana, one of our team members is in Louisville, Kentucky. Three of them, I believe, are in Houston, another one's in Dallas. So, you know, we've got, we're always on Zoom meetings saying like, hey, I just realized, like, this is a need in my community. Actually, okay, we're now all, like, retaining that those are needs in multiple communities. 
and how do we take that need and create opportunity for it? So the symposium really does that. And then we do what are called brew ups where we go into a shop, let's say, if the shop is struggling or even if like the community, they just want more community involvement. We do a brew up where we bring coffees from black and brown roasters for people to try. So then that creates, oh, I loved this coffee. How do I get that? Okay, so you're creating support. You know, it's creating this domino effect of education and support. I'm the director of operations. Anytime I go into a shop, whether I'm traveling or whether I'm here locally, I'm asking, how's it going for you guys? Actually, it doesn't matter if it's a marginalized identity shop or not, because typically they're still serving people of marginalized identities, hopefully. Then there could be a disconnect there. It's like, okay, what does the community involvement look like? What does your overhead look like? Does your profit make sense based on how you're getting from your producer? At the end of the day, it's really creating connections that cultivate educating and support and equity. Yeah, I just wanted to get a sense of like what what it looks like, like you're you're having a symposium where you're gathering people, mm-hmm. but then you're also kind of at times sending someone from the collective to. And it can look like if a shop reaches out to us directly, hey, this is what this is. These are my needs. This is what I'm struggling with. Okay, awesome. Then it would probably make sense, best sense to send out, let's say, Nikki, because Nikki's great with barista training. Let's send her out to make sure that they can do that or to get more of a feel of what those needs really are. And sometimes it's a matter of a shop might not know what they need, but they know something's not working, you know. And so it's like, okay, how like let us come in and just see what we can do to help you. We have a nonprofit side is Coffee with Keith. And so the goal of that is to ensure that it's accessible for these, because obviously if you're already struggling, you aren't going to have the resources to then pay a consulting team to come in. So we do a lot of through doing the symposium, everything like that, we're able to show fully what we do in order to raise funds through the nonprofit to then use those to support shops that maybe just don't have the resources to call on us for, hey, I need to hire you. We never want it to be a thing where someone doesn't ask for help just because they don't feel they have the resources to do so, which is really why we started in the first place. It's like, okay, there's clearly a need. There's a lack of support. Let's figure out how we can do that. Can you say more about what sorts of issues you're interested in in exploring or in addressing in the in the coffee specialty coffee world right now I am super super passionate about self-care in coffee and what that looks like for me is a lot of times you know when you're in a especially a customer facing role in coffee whether it's barista sometimes a roaster you can get so physically exhausted This is physical labor that we're doing. And a lot of times in those roles, there's not an opportunity for health insurance. And that's just the norm with specialty shops. They just don't have the the income to provide those types of benefits. So what does it look like to stand on your feet all day, also engage with people very intentionally? So you're using your physical energy, you're using your mental energy and your emotional energy Baristas and bartenders have a lot in common. Um, you know, they're getting they're getting the especially if you have regulars, they're coming in and they're 
they're they're just dumping like hey yeah i just need i need my coffee because this is how my day is going and it's a beautiful thing but i'm very passionate about what does it look like when you go home and what does it look like to actually be cared for and then have the resources to care for yourself so i create a lot of literature and curriculum based on like hey, if you're feeling like this, here's some tools you can use to care for yourself in those times and also how to advocate for yourself when you step into your shop. A lot of times I think when we think of self-care, people are like, oh yeah, like I took a nice hot bath. I took, and it's like, yes, also do that. Like <laughs> take care and, you know, get a good soak in. But also what does it look like to have that community care aspect. So that's my biggest passion just in life, too. I'm just like, how are we caring for ourselves? Corey talked about how the ritual of coffee making figures into her own self-care. Making coffee is the first thing she does in the morning. She usually makes a pour-over, which is a simple method of brewing that involves a device to hold the coffee filter with a measure of coffee grounds and hot water poured over the grounds and into a cup. I'm going to make a pour-over and use that time to really think about, okay, let me take deep breaths while I'm doing the circular pour with the water. Let me use this ritual that is a necessary part of my daily life as a reflection back to me of like, hey, how, how are you doing? Like, actually, let me check in with myself. And in that way, I have then the energy to check in with others to create the community care. That's really interesting to think about it that way, because I think a lot of times people, when they think about daily preparation of anything, speed and efficiency is the way to go. And, you know, that's the way to reduce stress is to make everything faster. (laughs) And like, it's just really nice to think about the time it takes to make something more slowly might actually give you some breathing space at the start of your day. Definitely. Definitely. We live in a world that's very fast paced. And for me, the time that I spend making my coffee just gives me at least three to five minutes of just I'm not doing anything else other than this thing. Coffee has always kind of been that symbolic thing for me because it's it's a ritual. It's like it's something I partake in every single day in Ethiopia when they began doing coffee ceremonies that's what the women did like the women provided the coffee and it is a moment to literally slow down sit together take time don't worry about the work that has to be done we're going to have this moment enjoy and then we're going to go out into the world you're caring for yourself in a way there's communal care there there's self-care there and then you're prepared to then go and do what is necessary and then come back and hopefully have a reprieve again. And if not, at least that morning ritual, or honestly, whenever you consume coffee, is that reprieve time. That's really, that's so interesting. It's something I'm definitely going to think about because I know sometimes I, you know, start to make the coffee, then run, trying to yeah. do a bunch of things at once, and, you know, the water's already boiled, and I'm going to have to come back and start the water again, or, you know, I've poured it and forgotten and walked away. And yeah. like, but just to sit with it and spend time making it happen, mm-hmm. I think I will enjoy the coffee more, because yeah. I might drink it while it's hot. And also just, like you said, taking that time of being present mm-hmm. instead of like, 
what other five things can I do while right. I'm making coffee? Right. It's like, how much can you fit in between the time that the water warms up? It's like that. We don't have to do that. Like we've almost been conditioned to believe we have to do that. But when we really step back, what what is required of us in in just that short amount of time? Nothing like nothing. Just just to do the task at hand and then hopefully enjoy the fruits of your labor. I'm speaking with Corey Griggs of the Color of Coffee Collective. We'll return to our conversation after a short break. Corey will also walk us through the steps of making a pour-over coffee, which she demonstrated here at the radio station using her mobile coffee brewing kit. Stay with us. Kate Young here. This is Earth Eats. We're back with Corey Griggs of the Color of Coffee Collective. One of the other characteristics of the third wave of coffee consumption includes people bringing some of the specialized grinding and brewing instruments into their homes and purchasing those single-origin beans from their favorite roasters. Over time, Corey has built up a well-equipped home coffee bar with her favorite manual brewing tools. But she doesn't let herself get too rigid about it. Here's more from our conversation. What I would really like to talk about now is a little bit of, I guess, nerding out on coffee. When I really stop to think about everything that's involved in making the perfect cup of of coffee, it's pretty complicated. It can be pretty intense. It can be. The coffee bean, where and how it's grown, how it's processed, the roast, the freshness, the storage, the grind, the yeah. the temperature of the water, you know, all these things. Yeah. So you were saying that you have a kind of tune into yourself and more of a flexible kind of approach. It mm-hmm. doesn't sound like you have this like coffee must be made in this certain way not or else I'm not drinking <laughs> it, you know? <laughs> yeah, I I definitely do have the technical skills. I just don't always implement them. And I think a lot of that comes just from my creative side of just being like, oh, I still want to play. Like, you mm-hmm. know, I want to see if I if I changed this up a little bit, what would occur, like what would happen. But when I even like think about my coffee bar, no, I do have everything that you mentioned you know I've got (laughs) I've got the scale I've got the you know vacuum sealed storage I don't grind my beans prior to using them you know there's there's different things that are just I think now ingrained in me from being trained in Uh uh, specialty coffee but I'm a big big advocate of like there's no wrong way to make your coffee if that is how you enjoy it live your best life and enjoy it because 
you're not doing anything wrong. It's not the same as like in cooking where you can just burn something and it's not edible anymore. I mean, I definitely recommend your water should be a certain temperature if you want it to actually be brewed and hot. But when it gets like into the really technical of like, no, it should only be 21 grams and 350 grams of water. And, you know, all these like I think about like pour over ratios. Yeah, those ratios are there for a reason because they worked for a person. Who's to say you can't try your own ratio and it actually works better for you or this type of coffee, you know, because even when we when we try out different coffees from different places, who knows if that ratio that we used on a coffee from Congo is going to be the same when we try this Ecuadorian bean. Those are different parts of the world. Those are, you know, and so that's the way that I think about it of like, I I have my ratios that I do use just, all right, I know how much coffee this is going to make. So let me just go ahead and do that. But sometimes if it tastes just a little different to me, then I'm like, hmm, what if I tried tuning down the water a bit? What if I slowed my brew method and just like waited while the coffee bloomed, which is what happens when you very first pour the water over? What if I let the bloom process be longer? You know, there's there's room to play in coffee that doesn't have to make it be so intimidating because I was very intimidated by making coffee when I very first was learning. I was just like, you have to set a timer and have a scale and all these things that I was like, oh, my gosh, I don't have any of that stuff. Like, how am I going to make coffee? <laughs> it's like, no. The, and you've been drinking coffee all these years. Yeah. So <laughs> it's like people have been making coffee for years and years and years without all that technical stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I also know that for some of us, it's just fun exactly. to get into the gear and get into the it specifics. Is. It's fun and it can be expensive. And, you know, it's, you know, I love like, I love fellow products. Like that's just my favorite brand of products. And that's pretty much what my coffee bar is. So it was fun to over time start to be like, oh my gosh, now I can get like the fellow grinder that goes there. All right. Next that I'm going to work towards is getting the fellow kettle, like all of these things, you know, figuring out what, what you like and what, and what works best for your coffee experience. And There's something to me so fun about brewing coffee for others as well. When you get to have all those moving pieces, it's it's kind of I don't know, it's entertaining. You know, you get to you get to experiment while also serving. And Corey was kind enough to share her skills with me during her visit to the radio station. We stepped into the station's green room kitchen area with her mobile coffee brewing kit. Do you often bring coffee making stuff with you if you travel? Yes, (laughs) everywhere that I travel, especially like if I'm going to be like in a hotel or anything. I don't really enjoy the hotel coffee, so I'll bring my own. And it's usually either my fellow setup or I will sometimes bring like an AeroPress, which is super easy to travel with as well. I rarely will travel with my kettle, especially if I'm flying, because that's a lot harder to do. But if I'm driving, I just... Oh, this is my coffee bucket and I load it up and this is my vacuum seal coffee container and I'll just grind it prior to leaving. This is a Three Keys coffee. They're out of Houston, Texas and this is a Costa Rica and the process is uh, yellow honey so it adds like a natural sweetness that they roasted it with honey. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. I don't think I've ever heard of that. 
So I just get my kettle going. For pour overs, I normally have it around anywhere between 200 degrees Fahrenheit to 205. I think right now it's set to 212, but I usually take it off prior to that. So this is the singular pour over set up by Fellow Products. And I guess the best way to explain it is it has the glass, double walled glass that your coffee will then brew down into. And the top part is the pour over contraption itself. And that's where your filter goes, where your coffee goes. I normally let my kettle get around 175 and I will do just just water to get my filter wet so that the coffee won't just stick to the dry filter itself. It just kinda, it preps it, I guess is the best way to explain it. Just a really simple pour over setup and it, it travels well, so. And so it doesn't really have that Melita cone shape. It's more right. of a, I don't yeah, know, kinda like a cup. It's, it's a flat bottom. So it's a flat bottom pour over setup. Yeah, so I just always do that so then it kind of warms that. It warms your cup up a little yeah. bit too and then you pour that hot water out yes. while you're waiting. And I did forget my scale but I feel as though I've done this enough that I can eyeball it a bit. You just start putting your ground coffee into your filter. And what is the weight you would normally do for a cup? 21 grams what I like to do and then I just shake so that the bed of the coffee gets flat and it is ready I also love this little almost funnel that you used yeah, to that comes, put that in that, that comes with the felt anything you get by fellow they're very thoughtful with their design even this is a fellow product the vacuum seal you just like turn it multiple times start to turn green like that and then it's vacuum sealed interesting i've never seen one of those either <laughs> all right we will begin the pour over what i like to do is slowly just do circular motions in the coffee bed and we create what is called a bloom if i had my scale i'd go to like 55 grams and I do what's called pulsing so rather than just like endless water pour over I let it bloom for a little bit and then take a break and then return to it once the bloom has settled a bit favorite things about this is when you pull this off it's created to have a little catch so <laughs> You don't get coffee anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Yeah. This one also, these little dots in this bottom container are also for measuring beans if you don't have like a scale or anything. So like their design is really So it's thoughtful. measuring beans or measuring gra ground coffee? Ground coffee. So okay. like if you do it to the first dot and that's the perfect amount for you to do just like a one cup serving. The design, it's the design for me. <laughs> I love it every time. So unfortunately I do not drink black coffee, okay. but I have some okay. cream. I brought okay. some half and half. There's no wrong way to consume. <laughs> oh, the color is so pretty. Yeah, 
Yeah, that is. It does have kind of a honey color. Mm -hmm. It's really golden and beautiful. I will let you mm. try this. Yep. Oh wow, that's so smooth. Yeah, it's the. Uh, There's no like. Also, none of that, this like, roaster is incredible. Wow. This is my favorite roaster ever. So where is the roaster? They okay. are in Houston, Texas, and they ship all over. So varietal that is talking about the kind of plant. Yes. Okay, so those are the three things that are listed there. Origin, varietal, and process. Mm -hmm. You know, I know with chocolate and wines, there are these different, like, notes that you're looking for. Yeah. What are some of the words that you use to describe things that you're going to be tasting in coffee? So, really interesting. I taste in color. So, when it comes to what we call the flavor wheel of coffee, I'm actually terrible at it because I typically am like, Wow, that tastes very, like this tastes very orange to me. It tastes like the color that they displayed on the bag. But in the flavor wheel, if you look at the colors, it'll show you that that will represent acidity or orange or um, more citrus forward types. And with, and I believe the reason that they did the honey process was because it's very citrus forward. So the honey is able to bring that citrus down a bit so it won't be so acidic to you. The cool thing about Three Keys, they actually created a flavor wheel based on jazz musicians and jazz music. So whenever they release a, a coffee, they incorporate a playlist that they believe goes best with the coffee. Yeah, it's amazing. So while you're enjoying the coffee, you're also listening to the curated music that goes with that coffee. So when I think about like flavor profiles, I always encourage people to say the first thing that comes to their mind. Like literally whatever's on the tip of your tongue, say it. Even if it's starburst, even if it like, if it's something, even if it's a memory, like sometimes when I drink coffee, I'm like, wow, this like feels like a day, like a morning on a front porch with the sun. It'll feel that way. So when it comes to flavor profiling, I'm very much in the camp of whatever you taste, there's no wrong answer. It's your experience. Three Keys does a lot of what I would call medium roast. And the purpose of that is to bring out the flavor the most. So they, T.O. is the roaster there and he plays a lot with flavor profiles of like, ooh, like if we only roasted it to this degree, how much of that juicy flavor is gonna come through and come out? And that's typically what you find in their coffees. I love honey processed coffees because it's naturally sweet. Yeah, I am really enjoying this. And I also didn't put in as much cream as I normally would. <laughs> <laughs> and I just feel like there's a there's so many different flavors coming through. Yeah. And the word juicy is never something I would use, but it kind of fit yeah. when you said that. I was like, yeah, in your mouth. Like, I, could, I kind yeah, of see like what you're talking about. The, yes, that's so good. It's kind of just like a science experiment all the time when you're brewing coffee. It really helps to have somebody walk you through it because yeah. sometimes if you're just on your own, you're like, so I tasted it. Right. What am now I looking what? for? What? Yeah. yeah. Tastes yeah. like coffee. You know, <laughs> Yeah. we I will always recommend like doing like a cupping or a cupping class. It's really fun, especially if you feel like safe enough to say anything that comes to your mind. I love the cupping experiences where people just go around and be like, actually, this tastes like sometimes people are like this tastes like burnt cigarettes. Like this tastes like 
And it's interesting is a lot of times that's tied to a memory because our senses are so intertwined. And so I just love always hearing like, especially when people relate coffee to like a candy flavor or anything, like it's just cool to experience. I thank you so much for doing this. Of course, thank you for having me. You can call me anytime, we can make coffee. That was Corey Griggs, making coffee and talking about coffee. If you're interested in one of the cupping experiences she was talking about, there might be local coffee roasters that offer them in your area. It's basically a guided coffee tasting session. Here in Bloomington, I know that Need More Coffee has done them and Hopscotch Coffee. There might be others. Ask around. If you attend, you'll learn a lot about coffee, flavor wheels, and maybe even your own particular preferences. And you'll likely have a lot of fun connecting with other people over a shared love for coffee. I'll post some links in the show notes on our website, eartheats.org. After a short break, we'll hear a few farming updates from Harvest Public Media. Stay with us. Kate Young here. This is Earth Eats. Elderberries are native to the Midwest and have been part of food and medicine of indigenous people for centuries. But the commercial cultivation of the crop is relatively recent. An interest in the small purple fruit saw a big increase during the coronavirus pandemic. As Harvest Public Media's Jonathan All reports, the niche crop is finding itself at the crossroads of trying to go big or stay small. Elderberries are pea-sized, a little sweet, and a little tart. They're also antioxidants and have become popular as a nutritional supplement touted as a way to minimize cold and flu symptoms. Elderberry products are a $320 million a year business in the U.S. that had a 13% annual increase in recent years. Patrick Byers is a horticulturalist with the University of Missouri. We've seen an explosive growth in the production, and we've seen an explosive growth in the development of markets for this crop. Byers says while nutritional supplements are the biggest market for elderberries, in recent years they found more use in flavoring beer and wine, as a natural food coloring, and in jams and jellies. And that has meant an increase in elderberry farms. One of the neatest things is when this whole field is flowering. Alan Helland is walking through his farm in central Missouri. And you harvest it or you're mowing it and it smells... Uh, to me, it smells like some sort of honey vanilla. It smells fantastic. Helen planted rows of these now eye-high shrubs four years ago. 
In most ways, he's a typical elderberry farmer, so pretty small scale. It's a portion of my farm income. Two and a half acres of new planting, you know, would not come up to, it wouldn't come up to a living. It's hard to pin down how much land in the U.S. is dedicated to elderberry farms. But Iowa and Illinois both have a couple hundred acres in commercial production. Missouri leads the country with 400 acres, much less than even one modest corn or soybean farm. Helen says elderberry farmers have to do something else in addition, either growing other crops and raising livestock, or being their own manufacturers and marketers. If I was doing the secondary processing on all my own fruit here, then it very well might. While no one is making a living just being an elderberry farmer, some say it's possible. Chris Patton is the president of the Midwest Elderberry Cooperative and works with more than 150 farmers across the region. He says with demand for elderberry products projected to grow by more than 30 percent by the end of the decade, now is the time for elderberries to go big. And we have to be able to do large-scale commercialization so that we can meet the needs of the larger producers in, in the place of imports and uh, meeting the high-quality standards. Patton says just replacing half of the number of elderberries imported into the U.S. with American-grown crop would be huge. He sees elderberries having the potential to be as big as cranberries and end up in energy drinks, nutrition bars, and many other products. But not all elderberry advocates agree. I mean, we think we need to be in drinks. We need to be in all these, these big outlets that people are pushing. Heather Wilson is a sales and social media manager for River Hills Harvest, a Missouri-based company that makes elderberry products and gifts. At the same time, that's going to drop our price. And again, you're going to have to farm 40 acres of elderberries to just make the same amount that you could make right now on two or three acres. She says the fruit's future is probably stronger in very small-scale producers who do more than just grow the crop, think you pick farms, and agro-tourism. But for farmers like Alan Helland, having the option to either stay small or be part of something bigger might be the most promising way to develop elderberry markets and farms. It stays something that can be profitable for somebody on a couple acres, you know, kind of your thing. But then... If it's organized correctly, I think there can also be the farmers who are doing, you know, 45 acres of it. Regardless of size, elderberry farmers will soon be very busy. The berries have a short period where they can be harvested, a two-week window in late July or early August. For Harvest Public Media, I'm Jonathan All. Peaches are synonymous with summer. But this year, consumers may notice that there are fewer peaches and they're more expensive. That's because weather knocked out peaches in places like Georgia, South Carolina, Illinois, and even here in Indiana. For Harvest Public Media, Will Bauer reports. In deep southern Illinois, Flam Orchards is known for its fresh peaches. Austin Flam is showing me around the orchard's processing facility. This is such an untypical year. Normally, these doors are open. Usually, the Flams would process hundreds of thousands of peaches every summer with the help of seasonal workers. You gotta use a little bit of imagination this year. While the line's not running, it, it doesn't give an accurate representation. The reason it's not running? A cold spell in late December knocked out 90 to 95% of his crop this year. In the big refrigerator-like warehouse where Flam stores the peaches, the bad crop is just as obvious. What normally would be chock full of peach bins is nearly empty. To have a loss as bad as we've had this year, it's very rare. This is the worst loss we've had in about 16 seasons, since 2007. And Flam isn't the only orchard that's had a bad year in the U.S. 
Georgia, long known as the peach state, lost 90 percent of its crop this year. Farmer and president of the state's peach council, Duke Lane III, says oddly enough, it was warm weather that zapped his peaches, making it the worst year since 1955. And so it's hard to say, you know, we're due, like that doesn't feel good, but it's not the first time it's happened and it won't be the last. The fruit needs to stay chilled for so long. Warm weather too early in the season can be devastating. South Carolina is the second largest producer of peaches and had only a slightly better year, losing 60 to 70 percent of its crop. Kay Rensel, the executive director of the National Peach Council, says as a result, there's a national shortage this year. With such a significant number and volume of fresh peaches coming out of Georgia and South Carolina in any typical year, it does make a big difference to the marketplace and the availability of fresh peaches. So peach buyers will notice two main things this summer. One, a lack of local fruit in the areas with unpeachy weather, and two, the price. Nationally, the cost for the fuzzy fruit is up 25 to 50 percent. While the Southeast, and Georgia especially, are known for its peaches, California is actually the top producer by quite a bit. And the good news for peach fans this summer, Rensel says, is that California had a good year. But that's not making it any easier for peach growers in the hard-hit areas, like southern Illinois. Near St. Louis, seventh-generation peach farmer Chris Eckert says it's tough to guesstimate just how much he lost until he's done all his math. Our overall is probably more like half a crop. We're going to be pretty excited about a half a crop if, if we can get that. And why exactly this year turned out the way it did for the Illinois orchards is kind of a mystery. For Eckert, he wonders why his crop did better than his southern Illinois peers, or why the Gala variety took the cold so poorly when the Red Haven did so well. His best explanation? Weather creates strange situations. That's kind of the world we live in, is the weather is different always. These types of one-off situations are not that unusual in our world. It's like, well, that's never happened before. This disease never was here before. That insect was never here before. Peaches are the biggest moneymaker for Eckert, so a short year like this isn't ideal. But the U.S. Department of Agriculture does offer crop insurance for peaches. And farmers, including Eckert and Lane down in Georgia, say they're hopeful next year will be better. After all, they say it can't be much worse than this year. For Harvest Public Media, I'm Will Bauer. Harvest Public Media is a reporting collective covering food and farming in the Midwest and Great Plains. Find more at harvestpublicmedia.org. The Earth Eats team includes Violet Barron, Aabon Binder, Alex Chambers, Mark Chilla, Toby Foster, Daniela Richardson, Samantha Schemenauer, Peyton Whaley, and Harvest Public Media. Special thanks this week to Corey Griggs and the Color of Coffee Collective. The show is produced and edited by me, Kate Young. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from Universal Production Music.